All right. Well, uh, last time we were finishing lesson one. I have a series of lessons that I've prepared, and then I'm just teaching on them as long as I need to. Um, so <laughs> the lessons that I prepared don't necessarily correspond with the teaching time. So we basically considered for two lessons an introduction to the idea of the Sabbath. Uh, and, and what I would emphasize here by way of review is just what was said in Terry Johnson's book, uh, quoting the Puritans that the Sabbath was and is the market day of the soul. Uh, and because of that, it is, um, it is central to the Christian life and obviously to the local church. Uh, we began last time to dive into the second lesson, which is part one of the historical survey, and then lesson three will be part two of our historical survey, and then lessons four through six. Again, this may not (laughs) correspond precisely one-to-one with the teaching times, but lessons four to six will be the practice of keeping the Sabbath. So general introduction, historical survey in two parts, and then in three parts, the practice of Sabbath-keeping. Practically, that may look more like eight lessons. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I had said that there would be a a one-off Sunday school in there somewhere. I may save that for the end and teach that afterwards. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, We'll see. And then after that, Elder Dave Stevens will be teaching on the the text of Scripture. Uh, I'm assuming that's New Testament only. Dave, it's Old Testament as well? Okay. So, but but in the in the historical sources, so not not the English, but the Greek and the Hebrew. I want to begin this lesson by reading uh, Hebrews chapter four, verses one through eleven. Therefore, he says, you might just want to listen on. I got to press into this this class. Uh, Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us. As well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Therefore it remains... Uh, or there remains, rather, therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now that that will be the basis of a later point in this lesson. If we get to it, I'm, I, I'm fairly confident we will, um, but we'll just see how far we get. Uh, we began last time with creation. And actually, I might uh, begin here to use the board a little bit. I need a pen, actually, or a a marker. I didn't think of that. Uh, 
I'll just try a couple of these. If it doesn't work, there we go. That's probably not all that clear. But God's rest was the first point. Probably need something darker. Let me try this black. It's always a... That's probably not going to work. Yeah, it does. There we go. There are three points about God's rest that I want to stress. The the emphasis here is uh, the beginning, the first Sabbath. And what we find on that first Sabbath is God's rest. And we can make, along with John Murray in his book, Principles of Conduct, three observations of God's rest at creation. The first is that uh, it was not inactivity. That's, That's the fallacy of the Jews that Sabbath means total inactivity. Well, it's not true of God. And therefore, it wasn't true of Jesus and his ministry. He says, my father works until now, and so I work. Doing the works of God, even on the Sabbath. Was not, his Sabbath was not one of an activity. Um, and yet, at the same time, it does involve, he says, let me see if I can spell this correctly, a cessation of one kind of activity. Namely, in his case, the work of creating. And then finally, God's rest involves delighting, let's say, delighting in a job well done. Delighting in the world he had made. Uh, what, what we saw is that, as a corollary to this, God gave Sabbath to man. So God entered into his heavenly eternal rest. He is still enjoying Sabbath. He's still resting in that sense, those three points. Uh, The work that he does, by the way, as a point of review, if you remember from last time, was uh, the works of preservation and the works of salvation. The works of providence and the works of salvation. The work of creation has ended. But God gave the Sabbath to Adam. He gave him an earthly Sabbath to keep. And he also gave him the promise of a heavenly Sabbath, which he would have entered into had he passed the probationary test. Of course, he didn't do that, did he? Uh, But it's that Sabbath rest that was then promised to Israel, and that is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 4, that still is promised to the church, that we would enter into the Sabbath of God's rest in heaven. That's what heaven is. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's a point where at creation, when we get to consummation, the end of the age... That is the church entering into her Sabbath rest. But as a corollary to that, God gave Adam a weekly Sabbath. He instituted the week uh, and, and, and called Adam, in essence, the ethic. This is principles of conduct, but it could equally be called Christian ethics. Uh, John Murray, he gave Adam, uh, his, his ethic was to be one of a life that mirrors the divine. That was the ethic of Adam. And so the reason that God gave Adam a Sabbath is because God enjoyed a Sabbath. And uh, there are... uh, the, The whole of man's Sabbath parallels God. Those three points become the points of man's Sabbath. 
So when you begin with God's Sabbath, and you see our Sabbath is corollary to His, or analogous to His, uh, suddenly it becomes clear what the meaning that, that, that the Sabbath is meant to take. John Murray says, The governing principle of this ethic is not merely the will of God, but, he says, conformity to the pattern of divine procedure. So God is enabling and calling man to enjoy the heavenly and the divine pattern. Another thing that we might stress about that first Sabbath is that it is a creation ordinance. It isn't something, uh, in other words, that we find at Sinai uh, only. That's the fallacy of the idea that the Sabbath is bound up with the Old Covenant and therefore it ceases with the Old Covenant. What's the problem with that? That there isn't just something that follows the Old Covenant, but there's something that predates the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant began with Moses at Sinai. Well, there was a lot of history before then, and there was a lot of history that followed the Old Covenant when Christ uh, brought it to an end. And we find the Sabbath in that period before the Old Covenant. In fact, we find it at the beginning of the world. Uh, We find that Adam was called to keep the Sabbath. Uh, And that it's amazing to think, but Adam in the garden, in a later class when we look at the practice of Sabbath keeping... Uh, I'm going to ask, what, what, what do you think his Sabbaths looked like? Now, we don't know how long he was in the garden before he fell. Pure conjecture on my part. I don't think he was there very long. <laughs> but some people say, you know, he was there for a while. And, and history was beginning to develop. He had observed several Sabbaths, let's say. He was laboring for six days, and then he would observe a Sabbath. Yes, even before the fall, man needed a Sabbath. The point is, it's what is called a creation Ordinance. There are several ordinances that you find at creation. What, what's another one? There's a very prominent one that we find. There's two, but, but one especially. John? To exercise dominion. Uh, yes, that isn't typically called a creation ordinance, actually. That's more associated with the image of man. Um, but I think you could call that a creation ordinance. Actually, I was thinking marriage. So typically, marriage and Sabbath are called the two creation ordinances. And we find uh, when the Sabbath is mentioned in the New Testament, he goes back to the beginning. In Hebrews 4, when marriage is mentioned in the New Testament, Jesus always goes back to the beginning. These are the two creation ordinances. But you could, you could expand the list. Typically, it is only said to be two. You could also say labor. John Murray calls labor a, 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 an ins, uh, a, uh, a creation ordinance and Perhaps you could say dominion. Like I said, normally that's typically tied up with the image of man. That's an interesting thought. I just hadn't thought of that before. Well, if it's a creation ordinance, what does that mean? It means that this is a blessing that God intends for humanity. And that's a much broader category than Israel. If you can say God only intended this blessing for Israel, then then yes, you would say uh, that, that that ordinance or that administration passes away. The Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament kingdom, uh, these things pass away. Uh, Very explicitly, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, the, 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 the laws of personal cleanness, all of those pass away. But the moral law that is published, let's say, at Sinai, 
is merely a restatement of the laws that were already in place and put in place by God. And as I said, you find evidence of that in the case of the fourth uh, commandment, which is our great interest. And so that rules out uh, the notion that it was tied up exclusively with the old covenant that the fourth commandment passes away with the coming of a new covenant, which means that there are still ten commandments. Uh, There are not only nine. We are still meant to keep the Sabbath. Uh, But then, uh, I thought, I guess I don't even know my own notes. I thought consummation would be the last point of the historical survey, but actually it's it's under the heading of creation. Just to preview consummation, I've already said this. What is heaven? Heaven is a world of Sabbaths. It is an eternal Sabbath. That's what heaven is. Uh, Robert Murray McShane. tells us that we love the Sabbath because it's a relic of paradise, that is Eden, but it's also a type of heaven. And if you, if you go back and read that, it's on the second page, you'll see him, you'll see him expounding upon that. He says, a well-spent Sabbath we feel to be a day of heaven upon earth. Do you abhor a holy Sabbath? Is it a kind of hell to you to be with those who are strict in keeping the Lord's day? Ah, soon, very soon, he says, you will be in hell. Hell is the only place for you. Heaven is one long, never-ending holy Sabbath. There are no Sabbaths in hell. If you go back to the beginning, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and you compare it with what is said in Hebrews chapter 4, that becomes the picture. But then, if we go beyond that, we looked, the first point was creation. The second point is the Jews. The Jews are, we can imagine, enslaved in Egypt. And as a token of their bondage, this will make sense when we later come to the fourth commandment, they were unable to keep the Sabbath. It was seven days over and over and over again of hard labor. When the Lord redeemed them and brought them out of the land of Egypt, he was interested in reinstituting and reestablishing the blessings of being in covenant with him, which means keeping the law, and it, it means being able to keep the Sabbath. This is one of the reasons that the Lord says, not only do I not want you to, to work, but I don't want your servants to work. It was, it was bringing to mind the hard labor that they had experienced in Egypt. And so their deliverance out of, uh, out of Egypt, you remember how he begins the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> These things are tied together. He's, he's reinstituting the blessings of Sabbath. But he, he actually did so even before that. In chapter 16, verses 22 through 30, uh, it, it's, this is another argument against Uh, Another argument against the idea that the Sabbath is tied up with the Old Covenant. Because the Sabbath is mentioned twice before we ever get to Sinai. It's mentioned in Genesis chapter 2, but it's also mentioned in Exodus chapter 16. Uh, I'm not going to read those verses, but it has to do with the gathering of the manna. 
And the Lord reminds them that you were to gather a double portion on on uh, Friday night, in the case of the Jews, and, and, and do not do so on Sunday, or Saturday. Do not do so on Saturday. And he, he's very clear that you are to keep the Sabbaths. Now again, that's Exodus 16. That's before they even get to Sinai. I want to read a quote from Dabney. Dabney has a very helpful article on the Sabbath. It's very long. I haven't, I haven't even finished it myself. Let me see the quote. He says, It is spoken of as a rest with which the people ought to have been familiar. Exodus chapter 16. But when we come to Exodus 20, in the giving of the law, that the law is codified, it's written on tablets of stone by the finger of the Lord. What is uh, the first word that the Lord utters with regard to the fourth commandment? Remember. When he codifies the Sabbath, again, to use the language of Dabney, he speaks of it as a rest with which the people ought to have been familiar and as a blessing which they are now, again, to enjoy. So that is the form in which it is codified. Uh, Another thing that I like to point out about the Sabbath is God tells us to remember it because we're apt to forget it. We get so busy and we say, well, my work week's going to crowd into my Sabbath maybe next week. Maybe next week I'll remember to keep the Sabbath. I didn't remember to do it this week. Well, that's what the Lord says we ought not to do. Uh, So, the Sabbath becomes... I don't want to minimize the importance of Sinai. Sabbath becomes uh, integral to the covenant that the Lord makes with Israel. It becomes the covenant... One of the covenant signs between God and His people. One of the ways that uh, their life is distinguished from the life of the nations. Uh, But again... (laughs) Think of it not as uh, slavery, but as actually freedom from slavery. Because it's the slave who has to labor under the bondage of of ceaseless labor. But the blessing of God's people is that they get to rest. And they get to worship. And that they get uh, to have a foretaste of what is promised to them in heaven. Which is endless life in the presence of God. But something that I would notice about the Old Covenant... Uh, Dabney and Voss are both extremely helpful about this point. Is that uh, there was, not in the fourth commandment, but uh, in, in the life of Israel, there was a ceremonial aspect that became attached to the Sabbath under the old covenant. I'll read Dabney and then I'll read Vols. Let's see. 498. Dabney 498. Uh, So he tells us that it it is a perpetual, it is a creation ordinance. It It is to that extent, he says, always a moral law, not a ceremonial law. But he says this, when the ceremonial law was for a particular temporary purpose added to the original patriarchal dispensation, again, that's the old covenant, he says, when that happened, the seventh day became also for a time a Levitical holy day and type. This temporary feature 
has, of course, passed away with the Jewish institutions. Again, I'll, I'll read uh, just the important part. The seventh day became, for a time, a Levitical holy day and type. Now, that becomes clear in, when I read it in tandem with Voss. He asked the question, and there's more that I want to read from Voss in a, in a later class. His, his exposition of the fourth commandment is five pages, and it's just tremendous. But he asked at the very end, the question can be raised whether in the fourth commandment there is an element that applies to the Old Testament church only. He says, there is a specifically Old Testament feature in the commandment which no longer applies to us. Nor must it be forgotten, this is the key quote, nor must it be forgotten that the Sabbath was under the Old Testament an integral part of, the, of a cycle of feast which is no longer in force now. So the whole, if you take the Jewish calendar as a whole, uh, you, you will see that the calendar was part of the ceremonial law and that the Sabbath was part of that whole well, Paul calls it observing uh, months, days, seasons, and years, something like that. Days, seasons, years. The Sabbath was a part of that. It was under the Old Testament, an integral part of a cycle of feasts, which is no longer enforced now. That's what Paul is saying we're freed from in, uh, for instance, Colossians chapter 2. All this, Paul says, we've been released from uh, or by the work of Christ, but not from the Sabbath as instituted at creation. In this light, we must interpret uh, such New Testament statements as found in Romans 14, Galatians 4, and Colossians 2. We are released from the cycle of feasts, from the whole structure of uh, Israel's calendar, you might say. In that sense, the Old Testament Sabbath took on a ceremonial form, and, uh, and, and from that external uh, form we are we are set free. The last point uh, that I would make is that the prophets. So this is I started at at, at Sinai and went a little bit beyond that. But uh, if you read the prophets, you'll notice that is in the Old Testament. Um, they they were condemning Israel with some frequency for their failure to keep the Sabbath. This was a mark of their impiety. They were buying and selling on the Sabbath. If you're ever curious why I try not to buy and sell, where did I get that? Well, I got it from the Old Testament prophets. That's how they condemned Israel. They were doing their business on Sunday. And the Lord was unhappy with Israel. He saw that as a clear uh, disdain for his Sabbath. And so a continual refrain in the prophets is a lament and a rebuke to Israel for, for her lack of Sabbath keeping. And, and, and that, that brings us to a close on the Old Testament side of things. But just as a personal note, one of the things that struck me when I would read the Bible as a new Christian, which is the Old Testament too, not just the New Testament, uh, was just how important the Sabbath was to God. You can't read the Bible and not get that impression. This is something that is dearly important to God. There were two, two sins... that God was ever condemning Israel of in the Old Testament. It was their Sabbath-breaking and their idolatry. But Sabbath-breaking over and over and over and over again. 
Now, we wouldn't say God's disdain for idolatry has ended in the New Covenant, would we? (laughs) Just because he emphasized it in the Old Covenant. Well, I view the Sabbath in the same way. This is deeply, personally important to God. And it's grievous to him when his people don't keep the Sabbath. This is a sign between us and him. And it's one of the ways that our lives are made to differ from that of the world. But as we come to the Gospels, again, I'm looking at the, 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 the Sabbath in its historical development, we come to the Gospels and we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we need to realize is that Jesus, when he came, was still laboring under the Old Covenant. When does the Old Covenant end? It's a, it's a little bit debated. It's a little fuzzy. You could look at it as a period, but when when does it end? There's two, two points that you could point out, or maybe three. Pentecost is the classic answer. You could also say the cross or the resurrection. But most fully, I think we'd have to say Pentecost. That's truly when the the age of the new covenant has come in its fullness, when the spirit is poured out. But if you looked at it as a total period, you would say from death to Pentecost. That period ushered it in. But you don't get there until you get to Pentecost. So... Jesus, when he walked this earth, was laboring under the Old Covenant. The Sabbath was still Saturday. Now, let me also make another personal note, and that is, again, new Christian, reading my Bible. It appeared to me that the Sabbath was important to Jesus, deeply important to Jesus. What do we find? Well, and, and, and let me just say this as well. I've always been perplexed. This is a, a, a note of personal importance to me. It is for my heroes as well, but why why such indifference to the Sabbath when it's so precious to God? I've never understood that, but that was the Christian culture I grew up in. It was considered legalistic. Uh, Any desire to keep the Sabbath was looked upon with utter disdain. I could never understand that. Uh, Just because I got a different picture and a different impression when I read my Bible, when I read my Old Testament, when I read the Gospels. It was his most common day to do healings. And this is what was so offensive to the Jews. Why was it offensive to them? Because they had no idea what God's rest involved. It was not a day of total cessation of labor. It was only cessation of one kind of labor. I often stress this. Certainly for me. You ask me, is Monday your Sabbath? I'll say, no, Sunday's my Sabbath. And it's a day that wears me out. Well... I'm not, I try not to prepare sermons on Sundays, okay? That's, that's the labor of the other days. But I'm busy. It's not a day of inactivity. It's a day of activity of another kind. Uh, but, it, but it's certainly the market day of the soul for me uh, and for you. But Sabbath can be very busy. It can be very exhausting. Uh, a well-spent Sabbath can be. Uh, if you have a proper conception of the, uh, of the Sabbath... You wouldn't say, you know, I find it surprising that Jesus was doing all these healings on Sunday. You would say, or Saturday, the old covenant Sabbath, you would say, now that's the day to do it. Was there ever a better day to demonstrate the works of God, especially the works of salvation? In fact, this is pure speculation and this is recording. Maybe I should turn it off for a second. But I happen to believe that Jesus will return on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day, you can turn it around. It means day of the Lord. Same thing. I I happen to believe that very strongly. I don't know that. 
But it's definitely his favorite day. It's his favorite day. Jesus in the Gospels not only acted on the Sabbath, but he taught on the Sabbath. And he makes two clear affirmations, uh, which I believe ought to govern our view of the Sabbath and to safeguard us from the false teaching of the Pharisees. What are those two statements? He makes a statement about himself in relation to the Sabbath, and he makes a statement about us in relation to the Sabbath. What is his statement about himself? Somebody, please. You'll break my heart if you can't tell me. John? Yeah, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He claims lordship over the Sabbath. Isn't that significant? And doesn't that, in my opinion, I I don't know how it could be argued otherwise, doesn't that dismantle the notion that he came to do away with Sabbath when he claimed it as his own? Remember, that was McShane's first reason that we love the Lord's Day, because it's the Lord's. It belongs to him. It belongs to him every bit as much as he says as the Lord's table belongs to him. It's his. We, We cherish it because it belongs to him. Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He places his messianic identity, the Son of Man, in relation to the Sabbath. Number two, he tells us something about ourselves in relation to the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Which tells us that the Sabbath is meant to be a blessing to us. A man's hand is withered. Can it not be healed on the Sabbath? Is that breaking the Sabbath? Or is that keeping the Sabbath? If you understand the Sabbath as something, not as a restraint, but as a blessing to man, you would realize that it promotes man's well-being. There's no better day than the Sabbath to heal a man. So Jesus is saying it was meant to be a blessing. It was meant to promote his well-being. Stop viewing the Sabbath as a curse, as a heavy yoke that is placed upon your neck, Start viewing it as a blessing. Start viewing it as a day that belongs to Jesus. And because you belong to Him, you want to keep it. And your whole view of the Sabbath will be transformed. It will become the best. I I always say it's the best day. I hope that you feel that way. It's the best day. And so these two affirmations should govern everything that we believe about the Sabbath. Another way to look at this is to ask yourself the question, how does my Sabbath keeping reflect my belief about those two statements? That Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and the Sabbath was made for me. In other words, just to fill that idea out, I'm not a slave of the Sabbath. That's what the Pharisees were saying. In fact, they were making God a slave of the Sabbath. The reality is that the Sabbath is my servant that God has instituted to promote my well-being. But that also means the well-being of my brother. Well, let's keep pressing on. Where do you think we end up next? We end up in the New Covenant, post-Pentecost, the Sabbath and the church. We are pilgrims in the wilderness. That's what Hebrews tells us. Throughout Hebrews, it tells us we're like Israel in the wilderness. We're not in our promised rest. We're trying to get there. And he keeps saying, this is the the context of all those terrifying apostasy passages. He says, I don't want you to be like Israel. 
And what happened to Israel? She perished in the wilderness. She never entered her promised rest. That becomes a picture of the station of the church. She's marching through the wilderness. She has a promised rest promised to her, and she must persevere. That is not apostatize. She must persevere in faith, exhorting each other day by day, and all the more as the day grows nearer, so that she might at long last enter into her promised Sabbath. That's the picture of Hebrews chapter 4. We are pilgrims wandering through the wilderness. We are like Adam. We are like Israel. We have a rest promised to us, but which is yet unrealized. This is a difficult passage. There was a long time that I said to myself, I, my Sabbath theology will be complete when I, can, when I can understand Hebrews 4. It's not easy. I'm going to divide it under three headings. Hopefully this will clarify what is being taught there and how that relates to what I describe as the station of the church. This is where people get tripped up. They make too much of the first point only. But the reality is there's three points, okay? I'm going to acknowledge the first point. And there is uh, a rest which people, God's people enjoy now. Okay? Now, if, if that's all you see him saying in Hebrews 4, then you're going to say the Sabbath command is fulfilled in the New Covenant. We, are it. we, have, we have entered God's rest. There is no more earthly counterpart. We have entered it. That doesn't work. That does not work in Hebrews 4. That does not work in the book of Hebrews. Uh, But he does say in verse 3 that we who have believed do enter that rest. And so he's acknowledging that there is a present enjoyment which is spiritual that the church is enjoying. But that isn't the only thing he says. He also says, and this is really the key thrust of the teaching and of the exhortation, is that there is a rest which remains unrealized. For the church. And that is her hope of getting into heaven. Are we in heaven now? No, we're not. Any more than Adam was in heaven when he was in the garden. He wasn't. To enter God's rest is to enjoy a life that cannot be lost. Even Adam did not have that. That's what resting means. Now I can never sin again. Now I can never die. You can't say that about Adam in the garden. But that's what's promised to Israel. That's what was or was promised to Israel. That's promised to us. This is not spiritual. What do you think the word I would use there is? It's heavenly. It's the rest of God in heaven set before the church as the goal of her existence. Entering her rest. Not perishing in the wilderness because we harden our hearts in in disobedience. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, he says. He says it over and over again. Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4. Hear what God is saying to the church. Persevere in faith. Verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Verses 9 through 11. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. That's the key verse. Verse 9. A rest which is unrealized, that she does not presently enjoy. 
For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent. Here's the exhortation. Let's be diligent to enter that rest. Let's anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. We're still striving to enter it. We're still hoping to get there. We're still witnessing people we thought were believers falling away. And they're never going to get there. They're going to perish in the wilderness. But hold fast, he says. Hold fast. And by the way, where was the priesthood instituted in the Old Covenant? In the wilderness. And it's that same paradigm that brings out the prominence of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We need a priest to minister for us as we are wandering through the wilderness. Uh, that's a broader point that doesn't deal specifically with our, our lesson, but I just wanted to make that note. But what's interesting to notice is that at the same time, and my how the time passes, that the earthly counterpart uh, is also affirmed. That even as the Sabbath rest remains unrealized, so the earthly counterpart remains in force. That is not the explicit teaching of this chapter, but it is implicit. And it is implicit uh, by what he says in verse 4, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He's referencing, is it just verse 4, or is it another verse as well? At any rate, he references I wish I had another book with me. There was something I wanted to check real quick. At any rate, he connects Psalm 95 with Genesis chapter 2. Psalm 95, Genesis chapter 2. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. That's Psalm 95. What he says in verse 6 is, uh, or verse 4, excuse me, is a reference to uh, is a reference to Genesis 2. I, what, what I'm tripping over is that, uh, and I'm, I'm a little bit stopped here in my tracks, I was reading a work and now I'm reading this, and I'm realizing that this is probably translated Sabbath in some translations and Seventh Day in other translations. I'm just curious. Uh, what does it say in the King James, by the, uh, by the way, Glenn? Which verse? Verse 4? Does it say Seventh or Sabbath? Seventh. Okay. Well... I was reading Dr. Gaffin on this, and he kept saying that it said Sabbath. Uh, Verse 9, if I can add this, the, the rest, that, that is in the Greek, the Sabbath. Part. Okay. So I, I don't, the seventh could be, and they might have just put seventh, but I doubt it. I yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm a little bit uh, lost in my own teaching here, and I apologize for that. And uh, my confusion, I think, is because <laughs> the translation that I was using or the, the book was using a different translation than what I have, I, I will clear up the confusion next time. At any rate, the point that I'm trying to make here is that by connecting Psalm 95 to Genesis chapter 2, uh, God is, is, or God through the, the apostle in Hebrews chapter 4, is connecting uh, our heavenly Sabbath with our, the earthly counterparts, just as he did in in Genesis chapter 2. In other words, if we've not yet entered in to our heavenly rest, 
then, uh, then the earthly foretaste remains because it is a sign of that heavenly reality. And that sign doesn't pass away until it is fulfilled. This is what Dr. Gaffin says. He says, uh, there is an interconnection between ongoing Sabbath observance and eschatological Sabbath rest. This ostensibly is the tie between anticipatory sign and reality. Again, the anticipatory sign is our weekly Sabbaths. The reality is the fullness of heavenly Sabbath. And uh, as I said, I apologize about the confusion on verse 4. And I will uh, try to clear that up next time. Uh, So I think we'll begin next time by looking at uh, by looking at chapter four of Hebrews and just clear that up a little bit. And then I actually want to go beyond the New Testament and look at the early church. And then we'll look at the Sabbath in the time of the Reformation and the Puritans, early America and then the Sabbath today. And that will bring uh, a close to our historical survey of the Sabbath. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the teaching of your word and uh, beyond that of the teaching of others. This is a rich subject. It's uh, certainly when we come to a passage like Hebrews 4, it's, it's difficult. Uh, and, and, and Christians are at times at a loss as to how to even to express these things. But, but Lord, we ask you that you would bring uh, through the teaching as well as through our own study and our own inward reflection and meditation, greater clarity and a greater, uh, a greater desire to find real blessing on the Sabbath day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.